Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. The patron saint of mothers with lost children is St. Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. And she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for his conversion, and we just sang his prayer, and it's beautiful. He was squandering his life on wild living, and she prayed and prayed and prayed and interceded for him, and he came back to the Lord as one of the greatest saints of all time, a doctor of the church. Who was it more difficult for, Monica or Augustine, the one who was lost or the one who's waiting for the lost to be found? Who is it harder for, the mom or the kid, the dad or the son? I mean, the the kid's having a grand old time. The parent's home with a heart that's breaking for their child. What action helped the lost coin or the soul to become found? She was searching and seeking diligently, every day really praying, really seeking the Lord. Light a candle, sweeping all the dirt out of life so we can see the image on the coin. Searching and seeking diligently, daily, fasting, praying, work, time, persistence. She lights a lamp, sweeps the house, seeks diligently until that coin is found. The word of God is the lamp. The psalmist says, the word of God is a lamp to my feet. You're in the word of God. You're learning his promises for you so you can share them with your families. We sweep away the dirt that has darkened God's image in our own soul. That's sin. The floors of the house were dirt. And so if a coin's lost under the dirt, your image is even more tarnished. That image of God, sin tarnishes that. And we all have this universal call to holiness. We, as the ones praying for someone lost and the lost, to come to holiness, to clean the coin, so we can see that coin again, the image restored, that image of God within us. And when it is restored, the joy is overwhelming because the lost is found. The dirt has been removed. It's shiny again. It's very usable for God's kingdom work. It's a saved soul. So the Lord is working with both people, the seeker and the seeky. Parents, if you're seeking for someone, this is for us too, to grow deeper in trust of the Lord, to implore him, to fast, to pray, to give alms, to just trust the Lord. And you'll need patience and you'll need diligence to do that. And the word of God, the light of Christ as guide and sweeping away the dirt of your own soul, growing in your own personal holiness so you can be an effective witness, an authentic witness of true joy for your kids. Now, I want to tell you one other possibility to consider with this woman. And I think this is interesting and no male commentators write about it. But 10, she has 10 coins, 10, 10, 10. What is 10 in the Bible? At the time of Jesus, the Jewish brides wore a headband of 10 coins. So they would have a headband. If, if, on your wedding day, you have a headband with 10 coins. Why 10? 10 in the Bible is the number for the completeness of the divine order. Marriage was the primordial sacrament. Male and female together in the marital embrace represent the Trinity. It's the completeness of the divine order. There were 10 commandments, the completeness of God's law. There were 10 plagues against the Egyptians because it was the total complete judgment of God against the pagan Egyptians. So this completeness of the divine order, 10, the number of harmony between the creator and the creation. So 10 
coins on a headband when a couple, a Jewish couple, is coming together in holy matrimony. A completeness of the divine order. When God married Israel on Sinai, he gave 10 commandments as the wedding gift. Remember? Nice wedding gift, but it was. It was God's gift to them for their beatitude, for their happiness to follow the law. Moses comes back down. They've made a golden calf. He smashes the tablets of stone. God reinstates the covenant. He renews it because the marital covenant with God is forever until one party dies. They get a second chance. Moses goes back up. He gets a second set of tablets written by the finger of God because it's an unbreakable marital covenant only ended by death. That's how God feels. So the end of that old covenant comes when God, one party of the marriage dies. God dies on the cross. Ten days after his ascension back to the Father, there's a new wedding. It's Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit is poured out as the new wedding gift. It is ten days after his ascension back to the Father. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. Ten days later, this new bride gets a new wedding gift from her husband, God. It's the Holy Spirit who's poured out on him. It's a new divine order. It's not just for the Jews. It's for all people, all Abraham's children. Now, you must know something about brides in the Middle East. In antiquity, in days of the Bible, ancient Middle Eastern brides were always bedecked with jewels. And it's in many of the scriptures, they were covered, plastered with jewels. Remember when Jacob married Leah, and she was so covered, he didn't know who she was. And, he, and, and they had the night together, he woke up in the morning, he was like, ah, it was the wrong girl, he wanted Rachel. And he had to work another seven years. So they were totally covered, bedecked with jewels, and it's in many of the scriptures, Ezekiel, I I will, uh, it's all marriage talk, I'm entering a covenant with you, says the Lord, you will become mine, I've decked you with ornaments, I put bracelets on your arms, chains on your neck, a ring through your nose, earrings in your ears, a beautiful crown on your head, you're decked with gold and silver, all these wedding scriptures, her ornaments, her bridely attire, with one jewel of your necklace, O bride, you'll wear them as ornaments, I'll put them on like a bride, a bride adorns herself with jewels. Why? Because divorce in the ancient world, in Old Testament times, for centuries, it has been possible for a husband in Arab nations to divorce his wife by a mere spoken word. The wife had no rights whatsoever. The man could just speak the word. They're in a fight. Ah, I'm done with you. We're divorced. Done. Like that. The women could not. The divorced wife was entitled to all her wearing apparel. And the husband cannot take from her anything that she had upon her own person on their wedding day. Do you see why they dress like this now? (laughs) Because when, when the marriage ends, if the marriage ends, that's it. She can have what she had on her body the day they married. For this reason, coins on the headgear and rings and necklaces became a very important wealth in the hour of the divorced woman's greatest need. She had children. She can cash in a a necklace of pearls and feed them for another few weeks. This is the reason why there's so much interest in the bride's personal adornment in Middle Eastern countries on the wedding day. They wear this on the wedding day. This is what they get to keep if the husband on oral command just says, we're done. I'm divorcing you. Adultery doesn't even enter the question. If there was adultery, it's punished by death. Both parties are stoned to death. So divorce wasn't for adultery, because if you commit adultery, you're dead. God hates adultery. Murder and adultery, he hates it. Women could not divorce. A husband could divorce his wife by a mere spoken word. But until Moses, this is how it's different for Moses when he gets the law from God. 
It was for this reason that the law of Moses limited the power of the husband to divorce his wife by requiring that he must give her a written bill of divorcement. Now, this was different than all the other nations around them. Any other nation could divorce orally, but Moses and his people, the Lord said, it has to be a written decree of divorce. Well, if you have to write a decree, you have to think about it and you have to write it out in longhand. And if you don't know how to write, you have to hire a scribe to write it out for you. Eh, oh, forget it. I'll just keep her. You know, I mean, that's a lot of work. That's a lot more time to think and to resolve the situation, right? So God gave this to the Jews. And this was very dignifying for the women. This was a great, great step up for women. Let him write a bill of divorce for her. They were the only ones that had to have a written bill of divorce. So the Jewish custom of divorce was superior to any of the other Arab nations around them. This raised the, the dignity of women quite a bit to have a written divorce decree instead of an oral decree, you understand. So when Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, the Pharisees again come up to Jesus in order to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? Well, they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and put her away. And Jesus said to them, for your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two shall become one. And they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God is saying, Jesus is saying, in the beginning it wasn't so. God doesn't even believe in divorce. Jesus is protecting women against divorce and raising the dignity of women. Why? Because in the beginning it was not so. In the beginning, remember, man and woman were totally equal. We could argue that Mary was even higher. The, the Eve was the queen of all creation. She was the final creme de la creme of creation. But they were equal in dignity. And then the curse came after the fall. When Eve, your curse will be that your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. So it's not equal anymore. Now man is ruling over woman. And Jesus is trying to restore the dignity of woman. He knows it's unfair. He knows it's unjust. He knows they're created equal in the image of God. So woman, it's as if her image has been tarnished. She's supposed to be 10, perfect in the divine order with man, and she's nine. She's lost a coin. She's lost part of the image and dignity that was afforded her by the creator. Woman is not a possession or a piece of property. But even so, at the time of Jesus, women in that culture had very few rights. Even the Jewish culture, a price was agreed on by the two fathers. The woman had no say so in who she would marry. The two fathers will hammer it out. They will bargain and barter and back and forth and back and forth a contract. A price will be agreed on. The woman would be sold as a commodity and she would become the man's property. And because of the Roman oppression and the high temple taxes at the time of Jesus, most of the women were poor. Everyone was poor. But the family would give 10 coins as a dowry and she would put it on her headband. 10, because the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, she was a woman of virtue. They would pierce the coins, the 10 coins, and they would string them into a headband and they would wear it on their wedding day. Now, for the Jews in a patriarchal society, to be a married woman is as high as you can go. A married woman with sons, especially. That is the highest climax of what you could climb in your career. Ten coins signify the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and the virtues espoused in a Proverbs 31 woman. And it's ten for the completeness of the divine order. So this woman had ten coins, and she's lost one. She's down to nine. She's lost some of her dignity. Just because of the curse to women, it's unjust. Her dignity as a beloved daughter of the father has been diminished. 
She's down to nine, and nine in the Bible is patience, the number for patience. It's also three times three, and three is the divine number, and God is revealing himself. God the Father, they know. God the Son is standing right in front of them. He's Messiah, and he'll pour out the new wedding gift of the Holy Spirit three times three. If just be patient, just be patient. I'm Messiah. I can be your bridegroom. She's lost a coin. Her image is less. Her image is in the dirt. Her dignity is less than 10. And she has that wedding headband that had 10, and it's down to nine. Now, I want to read you one commentary written by a woman. It was written by Lady Hoyes, and it's written in 1956. And I didn't find anything else from men commentators. But she says this, in Judea, a bride came to her husband with at least 10 silver coins sewn round her headband and often more. And her husband knew just how many there were, for he could see them. And they belonged to him as she did. Although the law did not allow his creditors to seize these personal coins on the wife's head. Because remember, what you're married with is yours. A crafty man might give his wife many such coins, yet owe much to a creditor, which was very annoying to the creditor because they can't take them. So they put all their money on their wife's head. So it can't be taken by the creditor. Nevertheless, woe to the woman who lost her coins. Her husband immediately suspected her of a wrong use of them. And the laws of divorce in the master's day were so heavily loaded against the wife that a man might divorce his wife if but one of those marital coins was missing from her headgear. And that is why the woman is sweeping so desperately, taking her broom and her candle in agony of dismay. She was sweeping not only for a bit of metal, but for home and shelter and respectability and for her right to a safe and honorable place in society, perhaps even for the right to her children. So when that coin is found, and she has a complete 10 again, she can go back out into society. She has her whole marital headband again. So she rejoices with her sisters. They get it. So... I like that. I like that. I like that. Now, the third one, the trilogy of the lost things. One to a hundred, one to ten, and now we're to one to one, a lost son. But really, there are two lost sons in this story, as you realized. One is redeemed. One question is still out. There's an open invitation. We don't know. It's a cliffhanger. We don't know how it ends. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that befalls to me. And he, the father, divided his living between them. That is audacious. That is so disgraceful in this culture, even in our culture today. If your kids came to you and said, I want my share of the inheritance right now, you you would be so offended. This, this, in this culture, this is beyond disgrace. It's as if the son is saying, you're dead to me, old man. Give me my inheritance. I want it now. I don't care about you. I'm not in a relationship with you. I want the money. I'm out of here. I want to go to a faraway land far away from you. So the father divided his living between the two sons, which is also unheard of. A father in this culture, there probably would have been a fight. There probably would have been fists flying. There might even have been outside the city wall. There might have been stoning. But remember the blessing and the birthright laws for the Jews. The firstborn always gets a double inheritance. And land is the greatest value that they have. Why? Because they own a piece of the promised land. Land is in Israel is the highest priced land you can ever buy. And they have and, and this kid wants his inheritance and he wants it now, and most of their money is tied up in their parcel of land. It's priceless, this land. And so the son, the eldest son, gets two portions. So you take your parcel of land and divide it into three. The oldest son will get two, and the younger son that wants his now, he'll get his one third of the land. But guess what? That land has to be liquidated because he can't walk off to a foreign country with a chunk of land. 
So the father has to put this piece of the land for sale. So guess what? The whole flipping town knows about it. He's got the promised land up for sale. Did you hear that? One of the sons wants his inheritance. Now he's liquidating a third of his parcel of land. Everyone's swarming to buy that piece up. The entire town would have known. And this would have been so disgraceful to the father. Everyone would have been talking about it. They're selling off a piece of land. He's liquidating the estate to give this rotten kid. And he's, you know, you know. <laughs> so the father divided his living between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. And he took his journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in loose living. Everything that he made from that parcel of land that the father sold for him, he squandered it, he wasted it, it's gone. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country. And he began to be in want. And so he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields for him to feed swine. Now, Jewish boys and swine do not go together. That is an unclean animal. That is not kosher. And he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine were eating. But no one gave him anything. So day after day after day after day, he's with the pigs. And it gives him a lot of time to think. And when he came to himself, and some translations say when he came to his senses, you know, he had to go find himself. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? But I perish here with hunger. I, I will arise. He had a lot of time to think, and he rehearsed this speech in his mind. I will arise. I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, God, and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That'll be the penance for the rest of my life. I'll make it up to you, Dad. I'll be a servant. He's rehearsing this in his mind. Do you ever do that when you go to confession? Like rehearse in your mind how you're going to say it so it sounds better? Yeah. You know, it doesn't sound quite as bad if I'll nuance it this way. Yeah, if I say that, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was yet a distance off, his father saw him. Because why? Because the father is always seeking. Not just welcoming, but seeking, actively seeking. The father has been keeping busy, scanning the horizon, waiting and waiting and praying. Watching and waiting and seeking the lost. He seeks, he seeks, he seeks. He sends others to seek. He puts people in our path. He wants our kids more than we do. And the father had compassion. That means he's moved. He's moved with great pity, with great mercy. And he ran. And this, my friends, is not done in this culture. Old dignified men, especially fathers, never run. The son runs to the father. The father does not run to the son. It's very undignified like David dancing before the ark of the Lord. Very undignified. But he runs and he embraced the son and he kissed him. And the son said to him, he did a speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And what did the father say? Nothing. The father said nothing back. The father said to the servants, hurry, hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. The finest one we've got, bring the best robe in the house. Get my ring, put my ring in the on his hand and shoes on his feet. The father's signet ring. That's the one that has the seal of the family. That is the father's signature. The signet ring would make an impression in wax. So they'd melt wax, dip the father's ring. He'd seal all the documents, all the family papers, all the important business things were sealed with the father's signet ring. He says, give it to my son. 
He didn't have the signet ring before he left. He's even going higher. He's being reinstated back into full inheritance and even higher. He gets the ring, the robe. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and make merry. The fatted calf is the absolute best meal you can have in the Mediterranean. It's what Abraham served the Trinity when they visited him. The fatted calf, kill it now. My son is home. My son was dead and he is alive again. This is absolute resurrection. This is the power of the resurrection. He was dead and he's alive again. That is audacious, prodigal, mercy, bountiful, extravagant mercy from the Father. He was lost and he is found. That is the greatest mercy. And that mercy is available for every single person in this room and every single one of our children and every single one of our grandchildren. Full forgiveness, full restoration of our inheritance, the finest robe, the signet ring, the sandals, and they began to make merry. Now, here's the problem. When they had that parcel of land, and it was one-third, 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 and he took his one-third and left, liquidated it, got the money, spent it all. Well, now they have two-thirds left of that parcel of land, and that belongs to who? The elder son. And when this kid gets reinstated back into the family, gets the signet ring, gets the best robe, he's going to also get to re-inherit again. Ooh, he's fully back in the family. The finest robe, the signet ring, the sandals, and now the land. So the littler section of land that was supposed to be all for the elder son is going to get split in three again. So now the elder son's getting even a tinier piece of the greatest land in the world. How do you think he feels about that? The elder son was in the field and he came in, he drew near the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and he asked what this meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, begged him, son, please come in, come in. This is also disgraceful in the Holy Land. For the father, the top gift is hospitality. He's having a dinner party. He's entertaining. He's the host of the party. And this elder son is out here. He will not come in. The father has to leave his guests, leave the party, go outside, fight with the older son. What's going on? Why are you coming up? Please come in. Please beg him. This is the humility of the father. This is how much he loves both sons. Both sons don't love him. One went away. The other one's just doing stuff out of duty. He answered his father, all these years I've served you. Out of duty, out of, uh, I never disobeyed you. Very duteous. I never disobeyed your command. You never even gave me a kid. Did he want to eat the kid with his father? No, you never even gave me a kid that I could make merry with my friends. We don't want you around, old man. Neither of these boys are in relationship with their father. Yet the father wants them both back equally. When this son of yours came, he devoured your living with harlots, prostitutes. You killed for him the fatted calf? And he said to him, son, son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. All he had left was that two-thirds of the land. It was all his. It's fitting to make merry and be glad. For this, your brother was dead. He repeats it. And he's alive. He was lost and he's found. The end. (laughs) That's how it ends. It's a cliffhanger. We don't know what the elder brother did. Did he go back into the feast? Did he? We don't know. It's an unfinished story. It's us. It's every single person who won't go into the feast. The first son is the sinner, like the tax collector. The second son is the Pharisee. 
Jesus says tax collectors are getting into heaven before you. Some commentators see this as the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the two brothers that split. Northern kingdom went up. They were taken by Assyria, but they never came back. They assimilated into that culture. Remember, they intermarried. They served other Baals, other gods. The southern kingdom was dutiful. They stayed in Judah. They kept the temple. They kept the priesthood going. And now you're going to give it to everybody when Messiah comes? He's going to unite north and south? What? We were the ones who kept the temple going. We were the ones who kept the priesthood going. Some people see it as the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles were living a pagan life. They were doing all these sins. They weren't living by the law of God. What? You revealed your... We were the older son. You revealed yourself to us first, the Jews. And now they're going to get everything? And now you want us to come into some banquet with them? This is how the church fathers saw this parable. So many layers, so many allegories, so many levels. I ask you today, who are you? Are you the prodigal son? Are you the elder son? Or are you the ever-loving, unconditional prodigal father with extravagant mercy for all people? <laughs> or are you all of them? This week I'm this one, this week I'm that one, this week I'm... Th I ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Be the humble sheep who's not too proud to cry out for help. The one who knows he really needs a savior, who's trapped in sin maybe, carnal pleasure. Be the one who was carried home over his shoulders because his yoke, your sin is easy for him to carry. He wants to carry you home back to the Father. Be the coin that had lost its dignity but got found and got shined up and is shiny and new again and part of the right divine order of the ten. Be the prodigal son who comes back home to the arms of the Father and repents and the Father just showers him with mercy, reinstates him, reinstates him so he knows his deepest dignity as beloved son of the Father. And he's been fully reinstated back into full inheritance, the costly price, the ransom of the son, his own son. Be the elder son who's humble enough to come back to the feast. And that feast is mass. And it's better than any fatted calf you'll ever have because it's the Lamb of God. The benevolent father has extended his personal invitation to you, to me, to come to the feast of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And happy are those who come in. Amen. Let's pray. Mm, praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord God. Oh, Holy Spirit, how you divinely inspired St. Luke. St. Luke, you're brilliant. It's a gift that the Father has given you. You're full of the Holy Spirit. You saw things that no one else saw. You wrote things that no one else wrote. No one else wrote the story of the prodigal son but you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing this for us. Please intercede for each of us wherever we are in life, whether we're a prodigal son, whether we're a benevolent father, whether we're a lost sheep, whether we're a lost coin. Just help us, Lord God, to get back to our heavenly home. Help our children, help our grandchildren, help our great-grandchildren. We have claimed them for you, Lord. We all live as part of your family. Help us never be lost. Help us always be saved till we get home to the Father. Thank you for your mercy, Father. Amen. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 15, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.